This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Music, uniquely among the arts, is both completely abstract and profoundly emotional. It has no power to represent anything particular or external, but it has a unique power to express inner states or feelings. Music can pierce the heart directly. It needs no mediation. One does not have to know anything about Dido and Aeneas to be moved by her lament for him. Anyone who has ever lost someone knows what Dido is expressing. And there is, finally, a deep and mysterious paradox here. For while such music makes one experience pain and grief more intensely, it brings solace and consolation at the same time. That quote comes from the book I'm covering in today's episode, Musicophilia, by Oliver Sacks. Tales of Music and the Brain. This is book 48 of 52 for my 2019 reading list. I'm Eric Rostad, and I'm coming to you right outside of Nashville, Tennessee. This episode will consist of three segments. The first will be a brief introduction to the book, the author who suggested it, and my initial reaction. Second segment will be three things that I've thought about for many years dealing with music that were addressed in this book. And the final segment, segment three, will be the one thing, my one key takeaway. So on to segment one, the author is Oliver Sacks. He was born in 1933 in Cricklewood, London, and died in 2015 in Manhattan. He's a neurologist and an author, with his most famous books being Awakenings, which you may recognize because that was turned into a movie with Robin Williams and, and Robert De Niro, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which sounds like a pretty interesting title for a book, and then, of course, this one, Musicophilia. Sacks, in the preface of this one, starts starts off by saying, what if some aliens came to Earth and observed people listening to music? He, sa- he says this, they cannot think what goes on in human beings when they make or listen to music because nothing goes on with them. They themselves as a species lack music. We may imagine the overlords ruminating further back in their spaceships. This thing called music, they would have to concede, is in some way central to human life. Yet it has no concepts makes no propositions, it lacks images, symbols, the stuff of language. It has no power of representation. It, it has no necessary relation to the world. End quote. It, it, it's a good way to start off the book because it, it does help you to take a step back and think about how odd music really is. Like you, you can't touch music. It, it's there. It's always going on in your head. So uh, he says later in the book, like, so what if these aliens were, were observing and they just can't understand what, what music is all about? Uh, but then what if you were then to also tell them, by the way, when we're not listening to music, it's still going on in our head constantly. We, we, we usually always have a song. A lot of times we're trying to get the song out of our head, but it, it's always there. So this, this book is, a, is a, kind of a set of case studies of ne- neurological disorders that somehow have musical ramifications. So for example, someone may get struck by lightning and then start composing music, whereas before in their life, they never never played an instrument, never really cared about music all that much. But then after this uh, kind of near-death experience or, or some sort of a, a neurological disorder, music takes on a, a different aspect in their, in their lives. He also ties in 
different different things in, in music with his own life, which which makes it very interesting as well. As for who suggested the book, uh, Hamilton Morris on episode 337 of the Tim Ferriss Show podcast mentioned this book. It's, it was also mentioned in, a, in another podcast episode of, of the Tim Ferriss Show. And I, I had been seeing it around, I uh, saw it on different reading lists, and I it struck me as interesting, and so I, I added it to my 2019 reading list. I read it between October 30th and November 3rd of this year. It's a 347-page book, so that was roughly uh, 87 pages per day of, of reading. It took me 7 hours, 20 minutes, and 28 seconds, about a minute 16 per page. There's a lot of footnotes in this book, and I, I read a lot of them. Um, some of them I didn't read, but the footnotes were actually very, very interesting as well. reason I share all the details about the time it took me to read it and that I track it obsessively and all that is is to give you an idea of, of how long this book might take you to read. I am not a fast reader by any stretch of the imagination, so uh, it kind of gives you an idea of what, what it might take to, to read this book. And I always like to compare that to the average American watching four and a half hours of TV a day. So if you're average American and you don't watch that amount of TV for two days, you'll be able to finish this book. As for my initial reaction, it's a really intriguing book. I I, I love thinking about, I guess, these these near-death experiences or or people that have some something in their brain that causes them to see things in a different way or have have different abilities than than the rest of us. Uh, and especially with near death experiences, I, I I view that as people almost getting a glimpse of of the afterlife in a way. Um, I've I've heard stories where, where people it, when they have near death experiences they they experience a new set of colors like colors that are not on this earth they they see they see like it's expanded realm of colors and in this book we see a lot of that with music like like new notes uh just bizarre things but it, it just it makes you think like what else is there it, it kind of a, that that shakespeare uh, quote in in hamlet where he, where he says there are more things in heaven and earth horatio than are dreamt of in your philosophy i kept kept thinking of that during during the reading of this book. So it's one of those that that expands your mind in what is possible and kind of makes you think, am, am I taking full advantage of 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 the brain power uh, in in relation to to music? And I'll, I'll get into some of that a little bit more. Uh, as for who should read the book, if you're a musician, you'll you'll enjoy this one. And then if you're curious on how the brain works, um, it, actually, it, it's a, go go forward with that curiosity. But this book is not going to help you understand how the brain works anymore. And in fact, it might confuse you a little bit, a little a little deeper. But um, but you'll at least come away with an, an appreciation for how the mind adapts, and especially in the area of music. Oliver Sacks says, music is part of being human, and there is no human culture in which it is not highly developed and esteemed. End quote. They, this is the universal language, music. And Oliver Sacks gets into a ton of topics in this book. For instance, this one covers earworms, and earworms are those songs that get stuck in your head and won't 
leave. He talks about traumatic moments that impacted interactions with music. Uh, we talk about fear of music, people who, who uh, have to leave the room if music starts being played. It, it has a, a really negative impact on their, on their brain and they just have to, have to leave. Those who hear music so vividly in their heads that they aren't sure if they're actually listening to music on a stereo or if it's in their heads. They'll actually, the, the song will be playing and, and they'll tell people to turn off the stereo, but there's no stereo on. Or they'll have a, a stereo next to them and they keep hitting the off button and the music keeps playing. And, and it, but it's so vivid in their head that, that they keep hearing it. We learn about uh, Shostakovich, uh, a composer. And I'm going to read this part. This, is, this comes from a, a footnote. Shostakovich, however, was reluctant to have the metal removed, and no wonder, since the fragment had been there, he said, each time he leaned his head to one side, he could hear music. His head was filled with melodies, different each time, which he then made use of when composing. Moving his head back level immediately stopped the music. So uh, that, that's the end of the quote. But Shostakovich in, uh, in the war had been hit by German shrapnel in the siege of Leningrad. And that uh, that scrap of metal allowed him to hear music, and, and then he became a composer. And in fact, while I was prepping for this podcast episode, I was listening to his concerto, uh, his cello concerto number one, which is a, a, a fantastic piece if you need something to listen to. And just to to learn about that, like how crazy is that? You get a piece of metal in your head, and then you you become a fantastic composer you're hearing stuff in your head and then you can move your head and not hear it that's crazy so this book covers stuff like that uh some other things uh our brain's process of taking a bunch of sounds and putting them together uh that doesn't work for everyone so if if you go to a a, a, uh and see the symphony and all these instruments are playing together and, and you're hearing all that your brain is processing all that all these different inputs of sound and instruments and processing processing that into into a song, into, into a, a, a whole, uh, even though you could also pick out individual instruments if you, if you really concentrated and, and perhaps watched the violinist playing. Uh, another thing, people with severe mental disabilities that cannot add three plus five, but they have a repertoire of 2,000 operas, full operas in their head. And if you ask them, they can, they can highlight any part, any vocal or orchestral part from that opera and they can replay songs flawlessly after just one hearing these are people with severe mental disabilities who have this capability and then music also controlling people with Tourette's syndrome uh, it, it can actually calm people down to where where they don't have the they don't act out uh, as they do with music not playing for for me that I I was really interested in, in reading this book because uh, I've, I've been a lifelong musician. I started playing the violin when I was three, and I studied using the Suzuki method, which I'll, I'll talk about in a little bit later in this episode. After violin, I, I took piano, trumpet, and guitar lessons. Uh, I still play the guitar. And later on, I, I actually picked up the, the Scottish bagpipes and the Irish alien pipes. So music's always been a huge part of my family uh, when we were growing up. My mother was a singer. My my parents met through music. My dad would accompany my mom singing. Uh, my dad would be playing the piano. And my sister is an accomplished harpist in Manhattan. My wife is a, a singer-songwriter. So 
always been around music has always been a huge part. It's not my, my main thing I do, but, um, uh, something I, I definitely love to do. So I was curious going into this book. I, I just have questions about music, uh, uh, questions of, of the power of music, all that kind of thing. And I actually mistakenly thought the title is of this book, Music Ophelia, I thought it meant love of music, but actually it means abnormal craving for music. So that gets into, again, the, the, the purpose of this book. Uh, Oliver Sacks, a, a neurologist, he's looking at different brain issues and, and disorders in, in how it impacts music. So I'm going to go through um, three of those things in, in this segment and, uh, and then how they're how they're described and, and, and why I, I'm so interested in them. And the first deals with dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And that's because my, my grandma had that. And my grandma died from, uh, from that. Um, and, y- you know, you, you just watch somebody, their mental capacity deteriorate over time. And even to the end, we could go into the nursing home and play certain songs and she would sing the whole song. She would have no idea who I was, no idea who my dad was, who was her son, but, and and not really have any clue of what was going on around her. But you started playing a song and and she came alive. And I I hear people talk about that all the time, that that people who have lost their mind, that they still have the ability to, to hear music, to to appreciate it, to even sing along with it, to, to hum along, to, to, to remember that, that tune. And so music heard, uh, uh, Sachs in this book talks about music being heard in, in, especially early in one's life, can be engraved on the brain for the rest of one's life. So when these songs are being played for, for dementia patients, uh, they, it's actually sparking uh, memories. Uh, Sachs says patients with degeneration of the front parts of the brain sometimes develop a startling emergence or re- release of musical talents and passions as they lose the power of abstraction and language. So that's kind of the other way he talks about it too, not just, not just bringing back memories, but um, also as people are losing their abilities, they're actually gaining abilities with musical talents. So not, not even just recognizing music and being able to sing along, but, but desiring to, to play music. They, they maybe can't recognize people or speak anymore, but they'll sit down to a piano and, and, and learn, learn songs. So really neat, really neat things. And then I just want to read a few, few quotes that were towards the end of the book and, and on the chapter regarding dementia. So here we go. I'm kind of kind of skip around here on pages 336 and 337. In particular, the response to music is preserved even when dementia is very advanced. Then he goes into talking about music therapy. The aim of music therapy in people with dementia is far broader. It seeks to address the emotions, cognitive powers, thoughts, and memories, the surviving self of the patient. To stimulate these and bring them to the fore, it aims to enrich and enlarge existence to give freedom, stability, organization, and focus. That's the end of that quote. I'm going to read one more. This comes from page 344. Familiar music acts as a sort of Prostian mnemonic, eliciting emotions and associations that had long been forgotten, giving the patient access once again to moods and memories, thoughts and worlds that had seemingly been completely lost. 
end quote. Uh, Sachs, reference, he, he talks about uh, one music musical therapist, and uh, she said this, what I do is act as a can opener for people's memories. It's really neat to think about, uh, especially when, when you, if you know somebody who has dementia, to, to think about it in the sense of, of, of music being a can opener for, for their memories. And by playing music for them or, or um, having something to where perhaps musicians come to the, to the nursing home to, to be there with your, with your family member, has, has the power to open up memories that uh, they can't access or, or things that, that have been shut off. It, it, it's like a direct ac- access to someone's brain and, and a really amazing thing to think about. I even think about uh, about 10 years ago, I used to play music with a, with another guy and he, he's a singer, singer songwriter. We, we would do a lot of cover, cover songs and, and then some of his songs and we'd play it at bars and restaurants. And I just remember it. Like I, I would get such into the flow that, um, that I would start having these memories pop up from childhood that I had not thought about in, in years. And I, I guess my, my guess is, is for people with dementia, it's, it's probably something similar to where you, you, you hear a song or, or your, your, it, your, your mood is, is bringing back these memories. Um, so very interested in that. Just, uh, it's always struck our family as, as, as interesting, uh, that experience with our grandmother. And now my grandfather is, is losing his, his mind as well on, on, on my mother's side. Uh, and yet music will still plays a, a big part. And my mom still goes to the nursing home quite a bit and, and, and plays music and sings music for, for him to, to try to bring back those, those memories and, and, and see him sing along. So that, that's the first main thing that, uh, stuck out to me in this book. The second one is this question of where does music come from? And, and, in the com- the composing of music, the the inspiration of music, where when people are writing music, where does it come from? This was a question I had about ten fifteen years ago, where, and and I I wrote about it a lot because I, w- I was kind of digging deeper into it. I was reading what different musicians were saying, uh, and and there's kind of this common theme of people saying they they have no idea. Um, uh, there's a quote here on page six. Uh, that where Oliver Sacks says, it's like a frequency, a, a radio band. If I open myself up, it comes. I want to say it comes from heaven, as Mozart said. And, uh, he was quoting someone else there who, and that was the guy that got struck by lightning. And, and then all of a sudden this, this inspiration, this, this frequency comes, comes through and, and songs are just pouring into this, into this guy and he's, he's writing them down. But yeah, just uh, different different musicians who who have, who have said they don't know where songs come from, and the, these are some of the greats. Uh, you'd recognize their names. I covered some of this in the episode where I, I covered the book War of Art, and the, just this this not knowing where songs come from, but but having having it kind of come from outside of you, and the way that. I thought about this while reading this book what in, in seeing these different neurological disorders and how that would lead to expanded musical capabilities just really, really made me think of how much more capable we are than we think we are, especially in our brain. And, and you see how, for instance, 
people who are blind, they, they have much better hearing, and, and especially with, with music. They can hear things that people with sight can't hear on, on a lot of, uh, in, in many cases. So what are we capable of that, that we're just not tapping into? And tying that in with where does music come from? Third thing is uh, he addresses perfect pitch and absolute pitch. And I'm interested in this because uh, I, I have perfect pitch. I've, I've always had it. My, my mom would, used to play notes on the piano and I'd be in the other room and I, would, I, I could tell her the exact note that she was playing. And so that's what perfect pitch, pitch means. Uh, in, in this book, uh, Sachs calls it absolute pitch. So whether it's perfect pitch or absolute pitch, that differs from relative pitch. So, so some people will have relative pitch where if they're giving, if they're given a, an initial pitch, they can, based uh, relative to that pitch, they can get the other pitches. But uh, perfect pitch means kind of like out of the blue, you can you can pick a note and uh, and know what it is. And also, uh, it, it, for me, with, with perfect pitch, when I hear a song, I, I know what key it is. I, I know what key it's in. And if I hear a song, I, I, I'm actually picturing in my mind the chords that I would play on the guitar. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a neat experience in a, in a way, but it's also kind of frustrating because uh, I, I, I know it, if something is out of tune. And, and then also, I, I've been intrigued when I, I played with that guy that I mentioned earlier, uh, we would always play a half step lower. And that actually messed up my absolute pitch, my, my perfect pitch a little bit, uh, because everything was a half step lower. And so I, I can still identify notes, but it's like it, that altered it a little bit and, and made it harder for me. So I wanted to read a few quotes that I came across in this book uh, about, about perfect pitch. So the first is, is this, and this is where I'm getting into uh, to the Suzuki method that I was trained on, on violin. So here he goes. There's clearly a wide range of musical talent, but there is much to suggest there is an innate musicality in virtually everyone. This has been shown most clearly by the use of the Suzuki method to train young children entirely by ear and by imitation to play the violin. Virtually all hearing children respond to such training. Uh, going on, uh, page 97, having absolute pitch, for example, is highly dependent on early musical training, but such training cannot by itself guarantee absolute pitch. So he talks about, uh, roughly one in 10,000 people having perfect pitch, but you're, you're more likely to have it if you're, if you start training young on, on music, which, which I was final Final quote here about um, perfect pitch. <clears throat> this comes from page 126. Absolute pitch is of special special interest because it exemplifies a whole other realm of perception, of qual- qualia, something which most of us cannot even begin to imagine because it is an isolated ability with little inherent connection to musicality or anything else, and because it shows how genes and experience can interact in its production. There is a striking association of absolute pitch with early blindness. Some studies estimate that about 50% of children born blind or blinded in infancy have absolute pitch. Uh, End quote. He also goes on to to talk about those who learn tonal languages uh, like Chinese or Vietnamese, uh, Mandarin, uh, Mandarin Chinese or Vietnamese. 
there there are more instances of absolute pitch because your 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 language is based on pitch as well. Uh, and final one there here, they, they observed that there was a critical period for the development of absolute pitch before the age of eight or so, roughly the same age as which children find it much more difficult to learn the f- phenomes of, of another language. This made me really want to get my daughters into to music here quickly before they get, get much older. But I, I wanted to tie in the Suzuki method piece as well, because Suzuki started uh, his method of teaching violin after he saw how quickly kids would would be able to learn music. So Suzuki during World War II, uh, Suzuki was Japanese. During World War II, he he left Japan to get out of the war zone. And so he was around all these people from different countries and was just watching these children learn languages. And he he said, if if they can learn languages that quickly, they they can learn music. And that's the whole premise of of the Suzuki method that you learn by by hearing. Uh, So just interesting there, the, the tie-ins with, with perfect pitch of, of learning at a young age and how more likely to, to have perfect pitch if, if you're doing that. And then the Suzuki method really makes it possible to, to learn an instrument at a young age. So my sister learned harp on the Suzuki method. You can learn piano. So it, in the past, it was, it was really associated with violin, but it, it's pretty much for, for any instrument now. Now on to segment three and the one thing, my one key takeaway from this book. I had a question going in, do we all hear music the same way? If we're at a concert, if we're at the symphony, does, is everyone hearing the same exact thing? And the answer and, and the t- takeaway from this book is decidedly no, we're not hearing the same thing. He's obviously covering extreme cases here, but we, we come across people who cannot even be in the room where music is playing. They hear things separately. Some people hear the instruments separately. They don't hear it as a cohesive whole. Some people hear a violin and it sounds like a clang, uh, a, a very disruptive sound that they, they want to get away from. Um, that was very interesting to me that that uh, people hear things differently. I, I guess kind of similar when, when I think of, of colors, like uh, somebody coming up to a traffic light, do those colors look differently to them? And they do. I mean, some people are colorblind, um, but how do I even know if the red that I'm seeing in that traffic light is the same red that you're seeing? Uh, same with music. Do we know that this the, the same thing you're hearing? I, I would assume yes, but it's not, it's not the case. And maybe a lot of people hear the same exact thing. But uh, and, and, and then in these crazy cases, people are, are hearing different things. But it just kind of one of those books that really expands your mind and, and your your thinking of, of things that we're in contact with daily. Like I never take a step back really to, to think about a lot of the things in this in this book. I, I have these questions and, and the, the ones that I covered in, in segment two, but um, but just like thinking of it as an alien, like why do we even have music or, or why is it always in our head? Like kind of just thinking about those, those questions for, for a time while reading this book was, was really neat. So I want to close out with a a quote here. Uh, And this is from Marvin Minsky uh, as quoted in this book. 
No one remembers word for word all that was said in any lecture or played in any piece. But if you understood it once, you now own new networks of knowledge about each theme and how it changes and relates to others. Thus, no one could remember Beethoven's Fifth Symphony entire from a single hearing. But neither could one ever hear again those first four notes as just four notes. And that's the bum, 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 bum. Uh, so he says, neither could one ever hear again those first four notes as, as just four notes. Once but a tiny scrap of sound, it is now a known thing, a locus in the mind of all of the other things we know, whose meanings and signific- significances depend on each other. I thought that was a neat way to tie this back in. Because we may experience music differently, but we all have this experience of music becoming a known thing and, and building off of itself and us not being able to ever hear four notes from Beethoven's f- Fifth Symphony as just four notes, uh, but that tying into to everything else. I, I thought it was a, a neat, neat, uh, neat quote from the book. So to recap... In terms of questions I've been grappling with uh, for many years, in in terms of where does music come from, uh, where does inspiration come from, why did my grandma relate so well to music when she had no clue who I was or who her own son was? These are questions discussed in this book. Uh, Perfect pitch, absolute pitch, uh, kids being able to, to learn music at a young age, a lot of things addressed in this book, but through really fascinating stories of, of near-death experiences or brain disorders that people have had and, and the music that has resulted from that, uh, the musical capabilities. There were also some great music suggestions in the book. He just kept referencing different pieces I'd never heard and, and made me, I, I would underline those and I, I want to go back and just kind of listen, listen to those now. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear from you uh, what you think of this episode or others. You can email me at eric at booksoftitans.com. Uh, it's eric with a K. So E-R-I-K at booksoftitans.com. Let me know what you thought. You can also follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter at Books of Titans. And the website is stock full of resources to help you find books and create a reading list. I'll be back next week covering another book. And also just want to make you aware that... Uh, After I finish my 52 books this year, I'm going to do an episode where I just stack all 52 books on my desk, and I'm going to pick up each book without consulting any notes. I'm going to say the one thing that I remember from each of the books. So that should be a a fun episode, an interesting one, and I'm I'm curious too to see what I remember about each of the books and to see if it is the one thing that I that I highlight in in each of the segment threes in the in this podcast. So. Stay tuned for that one. That'll probably be sometime in in December, I would guess. Until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out.